Well, amen. That is, um, that is incredibly good news that we have a firm foundation. Um, there are so many things in this life that are not firm, that don't feel firm. Sometimes we feel, feel things to be secure and then something just shifts suddenly and we realize that we have no, no foundation truly, but uh, the foundation that we find in Christ God, our sovereign God, through faith in Christ. Um, I want to say again to you, happy Mother's Day. And uh, if you're new here, welcome. We're glad that God has brought you here to be with us this morning. My name is Nathan Smith. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, I have the opportunity to preach this morning from the Word of God. So as we celebrate Mother's Day, hopefully we're all reflecting on the fact that mothers and motherhood are a wonderful gift from God. We were reminded not too long ago as we were going through Exodus and we were in the Ten Commandments, we looked at the Fifth Commandment and we were reminded that we are commanded to honor our fathers and our mothers. And uh, it's really because of God's common grace that's seen in our culture that we, that we have these days set aside of Mother's Day and Father's Day where we, we kind of see uh, an echo or a reflection of that commandment or or a desire in the heart of people to honor that commandment, uh, that, that fifth commandment, to honor our father and mother. And as we have these opportunities on Mother's Day and Father's Day in our culture, we should make the most of those. We should seek to honor our own mother on Mother's Day, our own father on Father's Day. And we should be thankful that there is still at least some remnant of uh, of God's command to honor our fathers and mothers in our culture, and that many people today are honoring their mothers. We should be thankful for that. But even as we're thankful for it, we should kind of step back and, and think about the irony of it, the fact that we have a Mother's Day set aside. We kind of ask ourselves this question, how long can a celebration of motherhood last in a culture that is undermining the very idea of womanhood as something that is distinct from manhood. It's a little bit ironic because you think how long will the idea of honoring mothers continue to have any meaning if the distinctions between men and women are seen as something that's entirely subjective. The subjective means uh, it's up to how you, you feel. Uh, whatever you feel like is, is what is real. Can you honor your mother as mother if she has decided that she no longer sees herself as a woman, but she feels herself to be a man? Do you deny that biological, historical reality that this woman carried you for nine months and, and gave birth to you? Do you deny that and then begin to honor her as, as what? As your father? This kind of subjectivity is creating a lot of confusion uh, there's an author, Denise McAllister, says not only is it creating confusion, but she says, subjectivity has been unleashed across the American landscape and is devouring everything in sight like a wild animal. I think she's right. And we need to ask how long before this subjectivity devours the meaning of motherhood as well. And the church's part is not only to lament and speak out against this kind of subjectivity, but it's also to teach rightly on true biblical womanhood. 
to display it in our relationships, and to celebrate it as a glorious reflection of our worthy God. And so because of this, because of the urgency of this issue, because of the foundational nature of this issue, uh, the pastors have decided that we're going to take this day, this Mother's Day, to step outside of our regular pattern of preaching that we've been preaching from the book of Exodus, and also to step out of our normal way of preaching, which is expository. That is, we look at a particular passage, and from that, we, we draw the message that God has put in there for his people. Um, and we usually do that systematically, uh, book by book, verse by verse, by verse chapter by chapter, um, typically taking smaller sections. But this morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching much more of a topical message than what we normally do. And so we're not going to look at just one passage. We'll spend time primarily in one passage but I'm not really going to be expositing that passage particularly. Um, we're going to look at kind of the whole landscape of Scripture and, and what it has to say about womanhood. And obviously, in the time that we have this morning, we won't be able to look at every passage that speaks to womanhood, but we're going to look at several different ones. Before we get into the Scriptures, though, I want to commend three books to you before we really get into uh, that, because... Um, there's two reasons I want to mention these books. One is that because this is such a broad and far-reaching topic, I'm barely going to scratch the surface this morning. And uh, I would encourage you to read some of these books to gain a deeper understanding of the solid biblical foundation for the things that I'm just going to be kind of hinting at in some ways and pointing to this morning. Uh, and these books will help you to also work these things out in your life in practical ways. So it'll help you see the biblical foundation more clearly and then help you to work them out in your life. The second reason I want to mention them is that I really gleaned a lot from these books in preparing for this message over the last couple of weeks, and I just want to give credit where credit is due. They are, um, these books have, have shaped uh, some of my thinking and probably some of the ways that I'm going to articulate things, and so I just want to give credit. So those books are uh, Designed for Joy, It's How the Gospel Impacts Men and Women, Identity and Practice, that's by various authors. Um, so that's one book, Men and Women in the Church by Kevin DeYoung. If you're looking for something just pretty short, concise, but clear, Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church, is really good. And then a much thicker book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, that's also by various authors. It's edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's a great book. All three of those books are out on our lending library wall, uh, along with a lot of other good books. So uh, I would encourage you and invite you to uh, go ahead and grab those, and you can, you can borrow them, and <clears throat> um, pray that God would bless your reading of those. So this morning, I'm going to be speaking directly to the women, but my desire is that all of us here, everyone here, would gain a greater vision for how God intends to glorify himself through womanhood. And so I'll just give you the, the heart of the message right now, and it's this. It's alliterated. So hopefully that helps you to, uh, to remember it. The heart of the message is that womanhood is a permanent, patterned, and precious gift from God. Womanhood is a permanent, patterned, and precious gift from God. So we're going to be starting in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to be going back to that several times. So I'd invite you to turn to Romans 12 in your Bibles. Um, if you have a page marker, you might want to put it there because we will be going back to it. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And this might seem like an unusual place to start, because 
It doesn't say anything directly about womanhood, but we're going to take some of the general principles that are found in Romans chapter 12 in these two verses, and we're going to apply them specifically to this topic of, of womanhood. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And I'm going to stop right there, and uh, if you have the ESV Bible, we preach from the ESV translation of the Bible. Uh, in the ESV, there will be a footnote right there on the word brothers. If you look down at the bottom, in mine it's footnote number five. It says, or brothers and sisters. This is kind of like saying guys in our, our culture. You might say to a group of men and women, I appeal to you therefore, guys. Um, so we can say legitimately, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters. Paul is talking to the whole congregation here, brothers and sisters. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray before we go on. God, we, we believe this is your word. We need your spirit to illuminate it for us, to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And we ask, God, that you would do that for the glory of Christ, but also for our joy, because we trust you and we know that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to come back to this passage several times, but I want to first, for right now, just draw your attention to the phrase in verse 1, that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So spiritual worship is not disconnected in any way from the way that you use your body. You're, you worship spiritually by actually presenting your physical body as a living sacrifice to God. And so Christians are not Gnostics. Gnosticism is a cult that first started developing in the first century. Uh, it was an offshoot, a, 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 an offshoot of Christianity but full of false doctrine, so it's a cult. Gnosticism had many variations, but one of the central ideas was that humans are essentially spirits, and that as spirits, we are trapped inside these physical bodies. And not only that, Gnostics believe that, that we are trapped, but actually that our, our bodies and physical matter in general is evil, and that evil had to be overcome by a, a secret or hidden knowledge. So if your true self was going to be freed from this evil physical body, you had, to, you had to gain a secret knowledge that, of course, came through the teachers of Gnosticism. Uh, so this is a little bit like the Matrix, where people are ignorantly trapped until they take the red pill, and then it gives them the secret knowledge, and then they can be truly free. In fact, there's quite a bit of um, Gnostic kind of philosophy in the Matrix. But that's kind of the idea. And, and the, today, we still see this influence in that the beliefs that kind of underlie the transgender revolution are, are really Gnostic at root. The body is seen to be evil. 
especially when it stands in the way of that true person, that felt person on the inside, is the way that this would be articulated. And we even hear this kind of language, right? That people might say, I'm a, I'm a woman trapped, trapped in a man's body, or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I have to be freed from this. It's a Gnostic idea. And this is one way that, that this transgender ideology is opposed to Christianity. Because the Bible doesn't present the body as something that's evil. The, body, the Bible presents the body as something that, in fact, all of creation is something that was created by God and was pronounced by God to be very good. Yes, evil has affected all of creation, but God hasn't pronounced physical matter to be evil. In fact, part of the good news of the gospel is that God will one day make all of creation new, including our physical bodies. And so women, the fact that you have a female body is not accidental. It's not incidental. Your body was created female by God. And the gospel then calls you to present your female body to God for his glory. That is, in a way that is holy and acceptable to him, as Romans 12 says. You are far more than your body, but you are not less. And this has a lot of far-reaching implications. And one of the implications is that because you were given a female body, your womanhood is a permanent gift to you. Your womanhood is a permanent gift from God to you. Womanhood is permanent. The fact of your femaleness doesn't change according to a subjective sense or feeling of womanhood or a lack of that subjective sense. Your womanhood is permanent, and partly because it is permanently attached to God-ordained, God-created physical realities. And these biological differences between males and females, they aren't just in the obvious areas of, of generally across the population, um, men having greater overall size and strength and the obvious differences in reproductive organs. <clears throat> but this, these differences actually go deeper, even on a biological level. Um, a, a guy named Ryan T. Anderson wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. And in that book, he cites neurobiological research that shows, and I'm going to quote here, a surge of findings that highlight the influence of sex, and he means here gender, maleness, femaleness, uh, that highlight the influence of sex on many areas of cognition and behavior, including memory, emotion, vision, hearing, the processing of faces, and the brain's response to stress hormones. People... Uh, men and women, generally, there are differences within individuals, but generally it has been shown that men and women think differently. They feel differently. They process the world differently. And he goes on to demonstrate that this can't be attributed to socialization. And otherwise, well, boys think like boys because they've been taught that way. Girls think like girls because they've been taught to think that way. Um, Again, I'll quote from his book. He says, A recent study using MRIs suggested that, on the whole, male brains are structured to facilitate connectivity between perception and coordinated action, 
Whereas female brains are designed to facilitate communication between analytical and intuitive processing modes. So they put MRIs on infants and studied how their brains work. And generally, men are geared for, uh, for action, and females are designed for, and the brains work in a way that facilitates, no surprise, communication, intuition, the things that we kind of go, yeah, seems to be this way. We're, we're not uh, unfamiliar with this. And this, this, for many of us, is not new or groundbreaking. And yet, because it has been so, um, the, the differences between men and women have, in our culture, been so minimized um, and even denied in some ways. This is helpful to know that uh, there is research that's showing that even in newborns, these things are present. And so these studies, for us, they don't teach us what is true, but they demonstrate the truth that we've already seen in Scripture. In Genesis 1, that God created men and women to be equal, and yet also permanently distinct. Biologically and psychologically, regardless of hormone therapies and surgeries, a woman cannot become a man, or vice versa. Your womanhood is woven too deeply within you to be eradicated by just changing a few external features. And some Christians have mistakenly argued, based on Galatians 3.28, that womanhood really disappears, or at least becomes insignificant, within the body of Christ. But this is a flawed understanding of this passage. Galatians 3.28 It says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. So you can see where this understanding might come from. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But you only get that kind of meaning that this verse negates womanhood and manhood if you take it out of context. In the context of this letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is simply reminding us that when it comes to being right before God and being united in Christ, that the markers of sex, the markers of ethnicity, social class, none of these things are of any advantage. Your womanhood doesn't become insignificant once you become a Christian. It just doesn't make you more or less acceptable before God. That's the gist of Galatians 328. And we have other we have clear indicators in scripture that womanhood is a permanent gift from God. And one of these is that our resurrected bodies in the new creation will be male or female. Uh, the gospels show us that Jesus' resurrected body, who is the first fruits of all who will be resurrected, his body was identified as a male body, as it had been before his resurrection. The disciples weren't confused about who he was. They recognized him. If he was clearly female or some kind of non-gendered person, I think they would have had a hard time recognizing him. His pre-resurrection body corresponded to his resurrection body. And we also see the, the permanence of gender in that when Jesus was asked about this problem of uh, a person who had been married multiple times in in life, what's going to happen in eternity? After they're all resurrected, is one man going to have seven wives or one, one woman going to have seven husbands? And the way that Jesus 
addresses this. He doesn't say, no, that's not going to be a problem because male and female won't exist in the age to come. The way that he addresses this problem, or says this won't be a problem, is that male and female will not marry in the age to come. Men and women will not be married in the age to come. Marriage is temporary, Jesus says, but gender is not. Marriage is temporary, but gender is not. Part of the good news of the gospel is that we will forever glorify God in physical, perfected, imperishable, and gendered bodies. Womanhood is a permanent gift from God. And that wasn't a random choice that God made. Womanhood is a permanent gift because, the second point, womanhood is a patterned gift. Womanhood is a patterned gift. Let's look again back at Romans chapter 12. Verse 2 instructs us to be careful not to be conformed to this world. And the word world here means age. We might think of it as world system. And we kind of use the word culture in a very similar way um, that we might say, do not be conformed to this current culture. And so if we apply this to our topic today, we could paraphrase this in this way. We could say, do not be conformed to the current cultural trends that tell you that womanhood is whatever you make of it, or that it is yours to dispose of if you so wish. So each age of the world, each kind of cultural moment, It's going to have its own pattern that provides unique pressures for you to follow and and to fall into that pattern. And none of those cultural ages is going to line up perfectly with Scripture. Which means that you should no more look to the 1950s, leave it to beaver kind of pattern of womanhood than you should look to the current cultural feminists who say that there is no difference between men and women. Neither of those are going to give you an accurate biblical picture of womanhood. God calls you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and that renewing of your mind happens by seeking the mind of your creator. He's revealed his mind through creation, through nature, and through his word. And so what does God reveal about his design for womanhood? We've actually already looked at some of what God has revealed about his design for womanhood in creation. In these biological, psychological differences, God has revealed something of his design for womanhood. But in Scripture, we see, first of all, that women are patterned after their creator. Women are patterned after their creator. And it would be more precise to say that men and women together are made in the image of their creator. I use the word pattern because... It's a P word, and I wanted to alliterate. But men and women together are made in the image of their creator. Men alone do not accurately reflect God's image, and women alone do not accurately reflect God's image. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we have in Genesis 1 is, is kind of the zoomed out, big picture telling of the creation story. And, and at the end of it, after creating both man and woman, God steps back, he looks it over and says, Genesis 1.31, he says, this is very good. His creation, all of it, including the man and woman that he's created, he says, this is very good. But moving on to Genesis 2, Genesis 2 doesn't actually carry on chronologically, like in time, uh, immediately. It does eventually, but, but Genesis 2 actually goes back and gives us kind of a zoomed-in picture that focuses in on the creation of mankind. In verse 18 of chapter 2, we see that before there was that declaration from God of this is very good, there was actually a not good. So Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so it's not until after God has formed Eve out of Adam's rib as a helper fit for him that then God declares over his creation, This is very good. Adam couldn't reflect the image of God by carrying out God's plan for mankind to have dominion over all the earth by himself. Adam needed a helper fit for him. It's mankind, both male and female together, that is created in God's image. And this shows us that womanhood is rooted most deeply, not in biological sex, but in something that's deeper and more mysterious. There is a spiritual reality to womanhood that is rooted in the person of God himself. And there's a mystery here. Uh, C.S. Lewis, near the end of the second book of his space trilogy, that's called Paralandra, he does his best to kind of try to unveil some of the mystery for us. Uh, it's in a passage where he's describing the main character's encounter with two basically angelic beings who uh, kind of embody and represent... Uh, the planets Mars and Venus. Sounds weird if you don't, it's not in the context of the book. Um, it's a really good book. I would encourage you to read it. But in this passage, C.S. Lewis kind of gets philosophical and he argues that gender is rooted in something that, deeper than biological sex. And it's something that intuitively humans throughout time have recognized in all of creation. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this section here. From Paralandra. A ransom is the main character. What Ransom saw at that moment was the real meaning of gender. So as he sees these two angelic beings who represent Mars and Venus, uh, what he saw at that moment was the real meaning of gender. Everyone must sometimes have wondered why in nearly all tongues certain inanimate objects are masculine and others feminine, which just goes to show that C.S. Lewis thought a little bit differently probably than most of us do because he says, everyone must sometimes have wondered why in nearly all tongues are certain inanimate objects uh, feminine or masculine. 
I'm guessing that not everyone in this room has wondered that at times, but it's good that he did wonder it. Ransom has cured me of believing that this is a purely morphological phenomenon, depending on the form of the word. Still less is gender an an imaginative extension of sex. Our ancestors did not make mountains masculine because they projected male characteristics into them. The real process is the reverse. Gender is a reality, and a more fundamental reality than sex. Sex is, in fact, merely the adaptation to organic life of a fundamental polarity which divides all created beings. There are a lot of... A lot of words in there that we don't use all that often, some concepts that we don't usually focus on. Um, I would really encourage you to read the, the book, the whole the trilogy, to, to grasp more of what he's getting at here. But I hope that you can at least start to get a taste of what it means that manhood and womanhood are patterned after the image of God. In Lewis's view, and I think he's right, all of creation is arranged in these patterns of femininity and masculinity. And this is because they are both rooted in God himself. Both are necessary to display the image of our infinitely glorious God. Women, you are unquestionably of equal dignity, value, and glory with men, not because you are no different than men, but because as a woman you are uniquely patterned after your Creator. Womanhood is also patterned after the church. And, you know, in that last section, you may have been like, that's really abstract. It's hurting my brain to try to even listen to C.S. Lewis this early in the morning. But the truth is that when we explore the meaning of manhood and womanhood, we are diving into deep waters. In fact, in Ephesians 5, when the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage, uh, in verse 32, he says this mystery, this Marriage thing is, is a mystery that is profound. He goes on to say, the core of that mystery, the core of the mysteriousness of marriage is that marriage refers to Christ and the church. In the preceding verses in Ephesians chapter 5, um, Paul has said that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Right? He's commanded husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so we know that wives, and I think we can say by extension, all women are patterned after the church. This is what all the mystery of gender that we see in creation is about. This is ultimately why it was not good for man to be alone. Eve and every woman after her was created in order to foreshadow or echo the glory of this mysterious union of Christ and his bride. The church was in the mind of God when he created Eve. Womanhood is patterned after the church. And in this, I'm not saying that only married women can fully display womanhood. Not at all. In fact, Um, when a Christian man or woman can remain single in holiness with the opportunity that that provides for greater focus on gospel ministry, when that's the case, the Apostle Paul commends singleness. He was single. 
And I think we can all agree that no one ever displayed true manhood more than Jesus, who was never married. And so we know that single women can truly and fully display womanhood. But the fact that Adam and Eve were created in such a way that Adam would foreshadow Christ and Eve would foreshadow the church does still have implications for all of us, whether single or married. And one of these implications is that it reveals something of the distinction between manhood and womanhood. That Christ is our protector. That he initiates the relationship. That he provides for our needs. That as the church, the church gladly accepts his protection, joyfully responds to his initiation, and thankfully accepts his provision. And while this will look different for sure in marriage than in other relationships, the way that we are created uniquely as men and women fits us or equips us to relate that way in marriage, whether we ever get married or not. And so the way that this works out between men and women outside of marriage is complex. It requires us to have our minds renewed by the Word, which means we can't mindlessly follow either uh, cultural trends or traditional uh, cultural patterns. But despite that complexity, the fact that women are patterned after the church and men are patterned after Christ, it will affect the way that all men and women relate to one another. The women, it is your privilege to show something of the glorious mystery of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And because of this, your womanhood is not only permanent and patterned, it is also a precious gift. Womanhood is a precious gift. Ultimately, God's purpose in creating you as a woman with a female body and the feminine characteristics that go with it His ultimate purpose is so that you will give him glory. And specifically, as a Christian, you are called to glorify him by being a minister of the gospel in a uniquely feminine way. In Ephesians 4, we read that the work of pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints. It doesn't say pastors are to equip the men for the work of ministry. It doesn't say that pastors are to do all the work of ministry either. It says that pastors are to equip the saints, men and women, for the work of ministry. And don't think of gospel ministry too narrowly here. Gospel ministry takes place in all spheres of life. Yes, it takes place in the church, but it takes place in the home. It takes place in the workplace. It takes place in the neighborhood. It can even take place online. Gospel ministry is what God calls us to in every area of our life. And so one of the reasons, women, that your womanhood is precious is that the ministry of women is distinct from the ministry of men. It's precious because it can't be replaced. Men cannot do the gospel ministry that God has given for women to do. And too often, discussions in the church about the distinct roles of men and women really kind of boil down to, well, men can do a hundred things, women can only do 97 things. Women can't hold authoritative office in the church, can't teach the Bible to men, or lead in the home. 
That's really a terrible way for the discussion to be framed because the truth is much more complicated and it's much more beautiful than that. In reality, men can't do anything in the same way that women can. And women can't do anything in the same way that men can. Even when we do the same kinds of things, if we are fully embracing our biblical manhood and womanhood as we do those things, there will be subtle, indefinable, hard-to-pinpoint differences in the way that we do things. And because we'll do these things differently, there will be differences in the specific effect of those things within the body of Christ. People will be ministered to differently by a woman than they will by a man. Men and women made in the image of God both have the potential for incredible influence in the world, but we influence the world differently. The ministry of women flowing from their womanhood is precious because it can't be replaced. And we have, <clears throat> seems like, um, a, an abundance in recent years of, of very, very tough, very strong women. And I think that's in, in culture, in, most clearly probably seen in movies, most really clearly seen in superhero movies. So you've got characters like Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Captain Marvel, these are female characters who are as strong and tough as any man. They can hold their own against any man or against any male alien creature and not even break a sweat most of the time. And if we put the most positive spin on why there's this proliferation of characters like this, we might say that um, <clears throat> these, these characters are just intended to demonstrate that women are strong, that women have strength. And that's true. Women are strong. Women have great strength. But again, while there are certainly some exceptions to this, by and large, women are not as physically strong or physically tough as men, as these movies try to, to portray. This is just isn't biological reality. And so for a woman to try to compete with men in terms of physical prowess, I believe it's actually already a loss for the dignity of women. I say that because in trying to portray women as manlier than men, the culture has ironically indicated that masculine strengths have more value than feminine strengths. In that way, women are seeking to be valued on a man's terms, but the unique strengths of women are precious and should not be diminished. They cannot be replaced by male strengths. There's a uh, philosopher and author named Rhonda Shervin, and in the course of teaching many philosophy of womanhood classes, uh, she would take kind of a, just an informal survey of her students, and over the course of a number of years, she gleaned a list, a pretty consistent list that she would get from all of her classes of a, uh, a list of positive characteristics that both men and women would associate with femininity. And these characteristics are not exclusively feminine, but they're generally associated more readily with women than with men. So she writes that people see women as nurturing, warm, responsive, compassionate, 
empathetic, enduring, gentle, tender, hospitable, receptive, diplomatic, considerate, supportive, intuitive, perceptive, sensitive, spiritual, sincere, emotionally open, trusting, graceful, sweet, expressive, faithful, pure, and caring. Sisters, your womanhood is precious because it equips you to glorify God through gospel ministry in thousands of ways that men cannot. But added to that, your ministry as a woman, as a woman, a particular woman, is precious because it is distinct from the ministry of every other woman. Not only are you different from men and able to minister the gospel in ways that are unique to women, but you as an individual women are also able to minister in a way that is different from any other woman. In other words, gospel ministry as a woman doesn't mean that you have to fit into a certain mold. Unfortunately, in the church, different ways of glorifying God as a woman are often kind of just pitted against each other. Single women are seen, depending on the context, as less than or potentially greater than married women, or an outreach-focused mom could be seen as less than or greater than a mom who is more home-focused, focused on discipling her kids. Homeschooling mom could be seen as less than or greater than a non-homeschooling mom. A Bible study-leading woman can be seen as less than or greater than a woman who is devoted to caring for those who are hurting. These things should not be. Not in the body of Christ. In Christ, we are all necessary parts of one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting verse 14, says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Paul, I think, is intentionally in this passage being a little bit sarcastic, humorous, to show us how ridiculous it is to think that other parts of the body have less value, or to think that we have more value, or to think that we have less value within the body. It's a ridiculous thing. The body as a whole is called, created to glorify God. Each part is necessary. And it says in the last few words of that passage, that these were all arranged, each part of the body was arranged as he chose, as God chose. Each of you has a unique part to play in God's great story. Each part is valuable. Each part is necessary. Each part is precious. 
And so the call is to embrace the part that God has given you and to help, encourage, and to to thank God for those parts of the body that are different from you. So in conclusion, I want to say this. Sisters, your womanhood is a gift from God. As a gift, it's not to be lamented or exploited or obscured. It is a gift that God has given to you so that you will present your body, your intentionally created and permanently female body, as a living sacrifice to God. And it may often feel very sacrificial to embrace your womanhood, especially if you struggle mentally and emotionally to connect to your physical reality. But your female body was given to you so that you would carry out your spiritual worship distinctively as a woman. And what empowers, enables you as a woman to embrace the gift of your womanhood? What would motivate you to push back against the cultural pressure, to seek to have your view of womanhood transformed by the renewal of your mind? The thing that would empower this and motivate this is the gospel. This is what Paul points to in Romans chapter 12. Look again back in Romans 12 one last time. Verse 1 He begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Therefore, he appeals. That means because I'm making this appeal to you to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God. And what is Paul talking about when he talks about the mercies of God? He's talking about this incredible gospel that he has been proclaiming from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. He says, because of all of this, all of this is God's mercy. And because of this, offer up your body as a living sacrifice to God. It's because though you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Because you have been justified by faith, reconciled in hope, raised with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, adopted as God's child, called to His forever fellowship, foreknown before the foundation of the world, predestined to be like Christ, and because you've been loved without reservation, because of this mercy that you have known, because of this mercy that is right now holding you and keeping you, offer up your body as a living sacrifice to God. Embrace the permanent pattern and precious gift of your womanhood so that these mercies of God will shine out through your life with Christ-exalting brilliance. And it is this gospel, the mercy of God, that we each week proclaim and celebrate through communion. If you are a believer this morning, I invite you to take your communion cup. And in that same passage, in the same section of 1 Corinthians that I read from a bit ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, shortly before that, is where we have Paul's statement telling, uh, telling what he received about the Lord's Supper. It's what Christ told his apostles. Paul was passing it on. And that whole section of the book of 1 Corinthians is about the body. 
the oneness, the unity of the body, that there are to be no divisions within the body. And it's in this communion meal that we are reminded that our our unity, it only comes through Christ. On our own, we do have all kinds of divisions, all kinds of separations, even amongst people who mostly look about the same and have very similar backgrounds. We will have divisions. We will process life and culture and things differently to such a degree that it will separate us unless we are united in Christ, unless we embrace our union in Christ. And so this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, if you've been baptized in a local church, then I invite you to take this wafer. This wafer represents the body of Christ, that he took on flesh so that he could bear your sin on the cross. Take it with thankfulness and faith. And then open the cup. This juice speaks to us of the blood of Christ that was poured out to make atonement for our sins. It's blood that sealed the covenant that unites us as one in Christ, tearing down all dividing walls of hostility. Take it with joy and faith. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, your your ways are high above our own. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So God, we entrust ourselves to your care, your wisdom, your love, and we praise you that we are assured of your love because we've seen it in the cross of Jesus. We've seen it in your redemption of us. We've seen it in your calling us to yourself. God, help us to trust you even more so that our our songs that we sing would be an overflow of, of our lives that we are seeking to live to your glory and praise. We pray, even in this time, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to shape our hearts and our minds, transforming us to be more like Jesus so that he would be glorified in us. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you please stand?